study your word, that we would understand our calling and what it is that you have called us and created us to be. And that, Lord, we would give our entire lives to fulfill that purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably, uh, that, that particular song is probably one of my favorites uh, that you'll hear on the radio right now anyway, uh, just because it reminds us of who we are and what we're supposed to be about. So as we begin this morning, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard the saying, birds of a feather flock together, right? We can finish that. It reminds us that those who are like each other often associate with each other. Nature determines association. A pig is going to associate with a pig. A sheep's going to associate with a sheep. But why does this matter to you and I? Well, as a believer, it's important for you and I to guard our heart, our life, and our testimony. And part of the way that we can do that is by watching what and who influences our life. One lie that about two decades ago the church swallowed was this. That if the church would just relax a little bit, if they would just be a little bit cooler, if they would you know, just be a little bit more like those around us, then people would want to come to Jesus. They'd want to go to church. And unfortunately, I have to say this. It is crippled churches. They have absolutely in almost every way compromised their testimony to a lost and dying world. See, we won't win the world to Christ by trying to be like the world. If we're going to win the world to Christ, we're going to have to stand out from the world. We're going to have to be different from the world. That's what Paul's going to get at this morning as we continue our study. And so if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 together. And as you're going there, here's the one big thing for the morning. Being devoted to God is necessary to guard our lives as well as be a witness to the world. So let's look at it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 14. And ask if you would stand as we honor the reading of the word. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this morning and begin our time of study in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would truly guide us into the truth. That it would be your Holy Spirit who is our teacher, 
knowing that he will use the inerrant and fallible word of God to draw our hearts to you. So Lord, it is our prayer that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Again, the one big thing is being devoted to God is necessary to guard our lives as well as be a witness to the world. Church, I want to emphasize this. Us living a holy life is not just about us. It is also about those around us. It's about those that God has called us and sent us to reach with his love and with the gospel. And so with that in mind, I want us to see in the text three reasons that a believer should be devoted to Christ and separated from the world. First reason we see in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, is this. The nature of a believer. We see a command as this section opens. He says, be ye not unequally yoked together. Now, while it certainly can't apply to who a believer marries, that is not the primary emphasis of this verse in this text. The emphasis of this text is Paul warning the Corinthian believers to avoid idolatry. And remember, an idol can be something that was good that we have elevated to a place where God should only be in our lives. And so it can be a lot of different things. We see this in verse 16 when Paul says, what agreement had the temple of God with idols? The Corinthian church was compromising their testimony in order to seem tolerant and relevant and we see this unfortunately even in today's society churches and entire denominations have turned their back on the word of God because they want the culture to like them but you and I have to categorically deny this idea because Jesus has told us and it was Jesus' life that showed us That if we are to live for God, we are not going to be accepted by the world. They are going to hate our message because they do not love our God. And and so we don't want to compromise our testimony to try to be relevant because we're not going to be relevant. What happens when you and I compromise our testimony is this. The world goes, I thought they were a Christian. Why are they doing that? Well, if they're a Christian doing that, then why should I go to church? Or why should I be a Christian? Because I already do that. And they just, they choose to walk away from Christ because of it. They were allowing sin, the, the Corinthian church was allowing sin to go unchecked in members' lives. They were trying to mix the worship of God with pagan practices. And this is probably going to be very, very unpleasant. But I fear that the church today is doing the exact same thing. We try to bring in Santa with Christmas and Easter Bunny with Easter. And we believe that God is somehow okay with this. It is bringing a pagan practice into the worship of God. There is zero chance that God is okay with this. See, in doing this, we are really violating the second commandment. 
Now, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. This was a prohibition on worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is this, you shall make no graven images for yourself. And so that was a prohibition on worshiping the right God the wrong way. See, there is a right way that we come to God and we worship God and, and we glorify God. And we cannot water it down, we cannot compromise it, and we will not apologize for it. When Paul writes for us to not be unequally yoked, he is reminding the Corinthian believers that because you have been saved by grace, your life is entirely different. Your nature as a person is entirely different. He does it in five ways in this text here. Okay? What, what he says is this. You have nothing in common with the lost around you. And when he says it, he says you have no meaningful fellowship. There's no unity in working together. There are no shared values. There's no shared commitment. And there's no common ground for worship. Why? Because when we came to faith in Christ, our life became about Jesus, not ourselves. The lost are still living as though life is all about them. The church is to live as though it's all about Jesus. And so we have to understand there can be no fellowship in this. And, and when Paul says in verse 15, and what concord, that Greek word is what symphony. Okay, it's where we get the English word symphony. Hath Christ with Belial, it's a title for Satan. He's going, how in the world can two musicians who are playing different notes on different times, how can they sound good together? The answer is they can't. And if you've ever been to a concert and you've heard people sing and they start breaking into two, three, or four-part harmony, and all of a sudden one person is either a little flat or a little sharp, you hear it, can't you? That's exactly what he's going at. Paul is saying that when you and I compromise our testimony and try to cooperate with the lost in worshiping God, we're a sour note. we're not to do it. Paul is telling them that the problems that they are experiencing in their personal lives and the problems they're experiencing in the corporate church are because they had a divided heart. They wanted all the benefits of heaven but wanted to live like hell. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. He'll love the one and hate the other or he'll cling to the one and despise the other. The answer to having a divided heart is to remember what Christ saved us from and what he's done in our life since he has saved us. Why should I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because of who he is and what he's done for me. Who has given us more than Jesus has? Who has done more for us than Jesus has done for us? Why would I not worship him? Why would I not want to completely cling to him? It's Paul's way of saying that we need to return to our first love, as Jesus said to the church at Ephesus there in Revelation 2 that we read earlier this morning. If we're going to influence the world, and one thing I, I love um, about our youth leader, Hunter, and I, I hate that he's not able to be here today, but... 
when he first came here almost seven years ago, he named the youth group Salt. And if you read their little tagline, it says, Seasoning Smith Mountain Lake. Now, what, what's he getting at? Well, he's referring to what Jesus said about being salt and light. He's talking about influencing those around us for Jesus. So I want to just kind of pause here for just a moment and ask this question. Is your life, is it influencing those around you to Jesus? To love him, to know him. Now in, in all of this, okay, we don't want to walk around and act like we're better than anybody else. Because we're all sinners, just some of it say by grace. See, this is about our allegiance to God. Right? This is about our love and our loyalty to Him. While we have to be different than the world, we cannot cut the world off. Because if all we do is close our gates and create our own little holy commune, we will be living in direct disobedience to a command from Jesus. Okay? We cannot go, oh, no, i got to be different from you. I can't be around you. And run away from them like what they would do. In the biblical days, if a person had leprosy, that person would have to stand at a distance and go, unclean, unclean. And that would mean everybody around them would go way out of their way to avoid that person. All right? Too often the church is doing the exact same thing. We're trying to run away from those God has called us to run to. If we cut ourselves off from sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, then how will they ever hear the gospel? There's a difference between condoning something and loving a person to Jesus. There's a huge difference. We cannot condone, we cannot participate, but we better love them enough to tell them the truth about who Jesus is. Because this is a nature God has given us. The second reason that we are to be different is this, the commands of Scripture. We see it in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 6. And so let's go ahead and give the uncomfortable statement number two of this morning. If you claim to be a Christian and you continuously and deliberately disobey Scripture, stop Christian because you're not. That's what God tells us. Now, I want you to hear the word continuously, habitually. There's a difference between this is something I'm struggling with, but I'm wrestling with it. I'm asking God to give me victory over it and just going, you know what? I don't care that's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. God will forgive me. All right, those are two different things. If we are wrestling and striving with God to give us victory, that's one thing. But for you and I just to go, you know what? I know what God's word said, and I don't care. I don't care who you are. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how many sermons you preach. You are not a born-again believer. So let's just dispense with it because the commands of Scripture are clear. Look, I mean, this, this is the second point that he's making, the commands of Scripture, because he ends chapter 6 by quoting three different Old Testament passages. And in that, he gives us two commands, to come out and to separate. This is about our devotion to God. 
Why does God call us out? Not to act or believe that we're better than people, but rather God is calling us out for our own protection. You see, many people, including some in the church, believe that Christianity is all about a set of rules. You know, this big old thou shalt and thou shalt not. And so they look at the Bible as a letter from a cosmic dictator who is trying to be a killjoy. Instead of looking at the Bible as a letter from a loving father trying to protect his children from themselves. I want you to think back to when you were growing up. Or you as a parent, what you have said to your kids. Have you ever told your children, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. You shouldn't do that. Have you ever tried to warn them? Were you trying to be some cosmic killjoy? That's how they thought it. That's how we thought it when our parents told us. But no, you weren't trying to take away their fun. You were trying to what? You were trying to protect them. You were trying to keep them safe. In many cases, you were trying to warn them against experiencing the consequences that you experienced because you made that same choice when you were young. Okay, this is what God's doing. He is trying to protect us from our greatest enemy. Me. You. James 4, 1 to 3, show us that the greatest enemy is the inner me. I love the way Dr. Chip Ingram uh, put it in a study that our Bible study class is going through on Sunday mornings. He said, the Bible acts as a guardrail. Have you ever driven, if you drive almost anywhere in Virginia, there's some beautiful scenes, aren't there? I just, it's amazing to behold the glory of God in His creation. And sometimes the best views that you get are on those one-lane gravel or dirt roads that are just barely enough for one of those little uh, smart cars to, to go by and you better hope and pray you don't pass anybody because on the other side of that beautiful scenery is like a thousand foot cliff that you're going, yeah, that's not going to end well if I go over it. Well, what do they do on those roads? They put a guardrail there. Why? Because they know that people as they're driving, they're looking out at the mountains and the majesty of God and where our eyes go is where our car goes. And so if my eyes are over here, I'm okay, right? I got plenty of room on this platform. But if I'm right here and all of a sudden my eyes are over here, well, somebody might actually be walking off the platform, forget what they're doing, stop and fall down these two steps and break their ankle in four places. Why? Because there's not a guardrail here. Don't judge me for doing that, by the way. There's not a guardrail right here to protect me from me. And so God has given us his word as a letter from a loving father to go, listen, I don't want you to ruin your life and I don't want you to wreck your testimony before the lost. This is what the word is. This is why he gives us these commands in life. Because God knows this. He knows the human heart and he knows human nature. After all, he saw just how depraved man could be. And he knows how easy it would be for you and I 
if we don't have the guardrail and we're not reading it, he knows how easy it'd be for us to get pulled back into that old sinful lifestyle. And how easy it would be for us to completely wreck our life and ruin our testimony. And so in his love, he gives us the commands of Scripture to protect us. But then there's the third thing, the third reason in this text as to why we should be devoted to Christ or separate from the world. And that third one is this, God's promises. There there are two promises in our text. Chapter 6, verse 17, the end of it says, I will receive you. This is God promising not only to save us, but also that upon our death, he will receive us into his eternal presence. He says, if you trust me to save you by grace and you live a life that glorifies me and points others to me, then upon your death, I will bring you into my presence. But then he gives a second promise in verse 18. He says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. In our sin nature, because we are sinners by birth and by choice, we are born alienated from God. Scripture would say that we are children of the devil. But when we surrender to God's grace in faith, when we acknowledge our sin and we surrender to Jesus, and understanding that only his death on the cross can save me, then Jesus adopts us into his family. He gives us a new name, a new heart. We're a new creation. Everything that used to be true about us is no longer true uh, about us. Paul, later in the, Old, in the New Testament, says that we are co-heirs with Jesus. So because I am a son of God, every promise that the Father gave to the Son is now also my promise. Why? Because I have been adopted into his family. He took me out of the sin, marred, messed up life, and he brought me in by his grace, and he gave me new clothes, a new heart. He changed my identity. That's what happens when you adopt somebody, right? Typically what happens is they come from social services, and it's because it's a bad situation, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've been approved, and this person comes into your family and you begin to love on them and and you begin to to mold them and shape them and then one day you get to adopt them and so their last name changes who they used to be is no longer who they are now they have a new identity yours in the same way God adopts us into his family and he takes us out of our sinness and, and he changes us. This is why it's so important for you and I to live like a son or a daughter of the king. Paul says in chapter 5, remember the word he used in verse 20? The ambassadors. You and I are ambassadors for Jesus. So when people hear us speak, when they see the things that we do, when they perceive the attitudes we have, 
what they are doing is they are essentially not only making up their mind about you, but they are also making up their mind about God. Because you're his representative. Feels kind of heavy, doesn't it? So in light of all this, what are we supposed to do? Guard your heart. This is the point of application this morning. Guard your heart. If I could emphasize this, I, I want to emphasize right now. We have got to take personal responsibility for the decisions we make. It's too easy for us to play the blame game. And by the way, don't sit here and think that the blame game is new to us. The blame game is as old as time. Go all the way back to Genesis 3. All right, The, the deception that happens there in the Garden of Eden. All right? Adam and Eve sin. They go, oh man, we messed up. They hear God's voice. They go hide from God. God comes and finds them. All right, beautiful picture of salvation. He confronts them in their sin to produce confession. Okay, now, if the story would have been God going, what did you do, Adam? And Adam went, man, you know what? God, I knew what you told me to do, but I didn't do it. That would be one thing. But that's not what happened, is it? No, Adam was a glutton for punishment. Because what did he do? He goes, it's the woman you gave me. I'm like, dude, do you, do you know you got to go home to her tonight? You're in trouble. It, so Adam blamed Eve. Did Eve go, yep, it's all my fault? No, she blamed the snake. The snake didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, that's, that's the outcome of the blame game. We continue to pass blame, but God is going, no, 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 no. This is your fault. This is your decision. We've got to take this personal responsibility here. You know, we see it so often in personal relationships. What happens is this. We do something, we say something we shouldn't, like it's the woman you gave me. And then we start to feel that conviction for it. And... and, we kind of tuck our tail between our legs, we hang our head, and we walk over to the person and we go, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said or done what I did. Then what do we do? But. I shouldn't have said it, I shouldn't have done it, but. All right? At that very moment, stop. Because in using the word but, you have just done two things. Number one, you are revealing your heart. You're not sorry that you did it, you're sorry you got caught. Number two, you are rationalizing and justifying your sin. See, the true heart of repentance is, Father, forgive me, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Not, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, But Lord, if you would have been dealing with them in that moment, you would have done the same thing. Now, we would never blame God for it, but we're certainly trying to rationalize ourselves to God for it. As soon as we throw that word but in, we're revealing who we are. But putting away sin is only half the equation. Look there, the rest of chapter 7, verse 1. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now notice in the English, uh, the word perfecting is I-N-G. That is in the present tense. 
It is a continuous thing that we do. So when he says perfecting, he means that we are to diligently and continuously strive to be holy. Now, why is holiness important? Because out of all the attributes of God mentioned in Scripture, the most often talked about in Scripture is God's holiness. It's Leviticus 11 where God says to Israel, 1 Peter 1 where Peter says to the church, be holy for I am holy. This is the second part of this, that not only are we to turn from our sin, but we are to continuously turn in pursuit of holiness. What does it mean to pursue holiness? It means to pursue Jesus. He is the epitome of holiness. We are to pursue Him in everything that we do. Repentance is not just a one-time momentary decision. It is an ongoing attitude that we live with. I am continuously repenting of my sin and my old way of life and turning in faith solely to Jesus Christ. We are to daily fight against our sinful desires and choose to devote ourselves completely to glorifying and living to God. Again, notice, perfecting it, you are striving for it. Church, we are not going to get it right 100% of the time this side of eternity. But we got to be fighting. we got to be fighting for it, striving for it. How do we do it? Well, Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Solomon's saying, be diligent about guarding your heart. Because who you are, what you do, what you say, and what you think all flow from your heart. So we're going to have another moment of heaviness right here, okay? Have you ever been dealing with a situation... And all of a sudden, you're driving in traffic. Somebody cut you off. And you wave to them. But you may not use the whole hand. Or you reach and you find that little horn right there. And you start to yell at them as though they can somehow hear us. In that moment, do you know what you've just done? God has revealed to you that there's anger in your heart. When we snap, when we lose our cool, it's God saying, you've got some anger in here and we need to deal with this. It's not about that person. It's about you. That's what Jesus gets at. We have to understand that who we are and the words that come out of our mouth, the actions that we do, they're flowing from our heart. What's in the well will always come up in the bucket. So we got to take extreme measures to guard our heart and our testimony. That's why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That was he literally saying, just reach in, pop your eyeball out, or take a saw and cut your hand off. No. What he was saying is take extreme measures to guard your testimony. Because it's not just about you. 
Have you ever noticed that, that when we have our least Christian moments, it's typically in front of lost people? So not only are we hurting ourselves, but now we are hurting our witness because this person that maybe God is trying to use us to bring to him, now they're tripping over us on their way to him. We've got to understand the seriousness of sin and go to extreme lengths to guard against it. Now here's just, I want you to be forewarned. When you start taking extreme measures, people are going to make fun of you. They're going to call you all sorts of names, Bible thumper, Jesus freak, you radical Christian, um, legalist, you know, whatever it happens to be. And man, I wish it was just outside, you know, in the lost world, but it's going to happen just as often in the church. I hate to say that. Why? Because so many people are just playing a game. It's Sunday morning, I'm going to church because that's what I do. And they think, hey, if I punch my heavenly time clock, then God owes me. When you and I live by the conviction of this word, we're going to stand out like a sore thumb in the, in the culture and sometimes in the church. But that's the only way we're going to win the world to Christ. I don't know about you, but this kind of feels pretty heavy. It feels like an enormous weight, like just an elephant just sat down on your chest and just sitting there. And you probably even wrestling with some feelings of doubt, despair. So I want you to hear this. You cannot, nor were you ever designed to do this by yourself. God has given you three gifts to help you guard your heart and to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ to the world. Here they are. Number one, the Bible. This is your sword. This is the playbook, all right? This is the musical score. Whatever your fancy is, okay, this is our book. This helps me know who God is, who I am, how to live in a right relationship with him. The second gift that he has given us is the Holy Spirit. You see it all through Paul's letter. He talked about the Spirit coming alongside and helping us. Listen, church, stop depending on yourselves to do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. It's only by the grace of God through the Spirit of God. By the way, using the Word of God. And here's the third gift he's giving you, the church. I want you to understand, everybody here in the 830 service and all of that, you are a gift from God to each other. You are. One thing I I believe that we need to reject in, in the American church is the individualism that's permeating our society. And what I mean by that is this. We have become a culture that is completely cut off from other people. We don't invest our lives in other people and we don't let them invest in us. We go, eh, my problem, I got this. Nope, don't need help, I got it, I'm good. When we do that, we are really demonstrating our pride because we're saying, I got the solution. I am the solution. 
just give me time to figure this out. God created us for community. We are to prod one another, to love in good works. Why? Because it doesn't come natural. Hebrews 10, 24. Scripture tells us to bear and share one another's burdens. Scripture tells us to confess your faults, your sins to one another. Scripture tells us to weep, uh, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why? Because God has given us the body of Christ who have a same uh, love of God and a calling to help us be the men and women that we're supposed to be. And when you cut yourself off from the body of Christ, you are cutting yourself off from the blessing of God. When you try to do it yourself, you're saying, I don't need God and I don't need his body. I'm good. God goes before fall. So I just want to ask a couple questions. Who is truly in control of your life right now? Some of you may have walked in here and you've heard of Jesus, you know, you've probably heard the stories but you've never once internalized it and personalized it. You've never understood that Jesus died for your sins and that apart from him, you can't be forgiven and you can't be saved. You're not guarding your heart. And so Jesus is saying, come, give me. Give me your heart. Trust me with your life. Some of you have trusted Christ and praise God But is in control of every aspect of your life. We have created a culture in America where we can go to church and we can put on a mask and we can control what other people think about us. And the bad part about it is we don't take that mask off when we leave church. We keep it on even when we go to God. And, and, and we think that we're fooling God. Like he doesn't really know who we are. So maybe what God's asking you to do is rip that mask off today and just be honest. Listen, there's not a single person in this room that isn't a sinner. There isn't a single person in this room that isn't messed up in some way. But there's also not a person in this room who is your judge or my judge. I don't have to fear being honest with, with, with a brother in Christ. We don't have to fear what they may say because God already knew it and God already loved me and he's already forgiven me for it. So your judgment means nothing because Christ is the ultimate judge who has declared me not guilty. The only thing that you're doing is keeping yourself from living the life God has called you to. So you need to take a mask off. You just need to be honest with God. This is the time. Would you stand as we're going to pray together? Father God, as we continue to move through this worship service, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity just to 
dive into your word. Lord, this has probably been one of the weightier messages of this particular series, but it's also one of the most needed. Because, God, we can deceive ourselves. Our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't seek you. But we see time and time again from Genesis all the way through how you seek out the sinner. And in your grace, you bring the conviction of sin, not as a means of condemnation, but as pointing them to be saved. To help us to understand that we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus died in our place to save us. So, Father, I'm resting and trusting solely in the promise of Scripture where you said that as your word goes out, it will not return void, but it will accomplish what you desire to. Lord, I don't know exactly what desire you have for this word this morning. But I pray that it would be accomplished in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. As you continue to stand, we're going to sing one more song together. If there's something you need to pray about, I'll pray with you up here. You can pray at the altar, pray at the pew. Let's just respond in obedience as we guard our heart, let's glorify Christ.